So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, and the uh, you know the, the COVID pandemic lingers on and on, but I, I feel as though the fog, at least for uh, the time being, is starting to clear a little bit. And maybe it's because I got out of town for a couple of weeks. Well, I was going to say you have escaped. You have blown the, <laughs> <laughs> blown the Allie, city. Allie and I just loaded up the car in the middle of the night and took off while nobody was looking. Uh, we went to <laughs> South Carolina and hung out on the beach for a while. Now we're kind of slowly oh, making our way back home. I'm joining you from East Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you guys got away. I got to catch some of your pictures, and it looks like you've had a lot of really, really cool time, downtime together. So that's yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. A little relief from quarantine fatigue. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's given me some time to think think. Um, Is this true for you, David? Do you get so caught up in the daily to-do list and, you know, that list of goals to accomplish and you just get in the rut of of doing that you you don't step back to like critically examine what it is you're doing? Oh, man. Yeah. I've had that conversation with myself. uh, I think through actually from as a result of this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, I, I, speaking for myself, I know that I can get so almost hypnotized into maintaining a routine. Once I learn a routine, it doesn't matter in the end whether that routine is all that efficient. Or, uh, or as my dad used to say sometimes when uh, when we'd get lost on long country drives, he'd say, uh, well, we don't know where we're going, but we're making good time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Boy, that you know, works anywhere in life. Yeah, that's yeah, great. yeah. It really helps uh, to stop, literally or figuratively, and take out the map and kind of uh, find out where you are, find out where you are in relation to where you want to go, and uh, decide what is, is there actually a better way to get there than the way you're going now. Yeah. Well, is the we, way you're spending we, we've yourself. got a guest. Yeah. This, yeah. Yeah. We've got a guest this week who um, is pulling out the map for us in a huge way. Uh, one of the most enlightening and entertaining conversations we've had on this show. I mm-hmm. can't wait for our listeners to hear it. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. 
Well, welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And we have got another five-star fascinating guest this week. We do. Uh, I, 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 with one of the best book titles I've ever heard. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, so Michael Brody Waite is with us. And what's the title of the book, Michael? Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. Oh, man. I can't wait to hear about this. I, I Now, I something tells me that there's some backstory to this. You didn't just come, uh, you know, out of nowhere uh, up to the idea that maybe there is some crossover between recovery and good leadership, good lead living and good, uh, right living and good leading. Uh, can you tell us a little of your backstory? Yeah. So, so the, well, the really short backstory for the actual book is the book is an extension of the Ted talk that I did two years ago, where I wanted to explore the concept of being able to give a Ted talk where the title was great leaders do what drug addicts do. And, and the reason and the, that title came from a very frustrating conversation with my wife, where I was trying to articulate why I believe that I had been so, so successful in business. You know, I, I didn't have a college degree. I'm a recovering drug addict. And basically I just finally blurted out. I'm like, I just think that all the leaders should do what drug addicts do. <laughs> and, 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 and so that led to the title of the Ted talk. And basically uh, in my experience, you know, and I can talk a little bit about the addiction story, but I think we talk about great leaders and, and we have a picture of people that are really proud and strong and they don't have any weaknesses and they don't show vulnerability. Mm. And, you know, and that's the, that's the vision of a leader I had growing up as a kid, but I also had um, a vision for what it meant to be a drug addict, a very shameful thing, a waste of space. Um, you never want to be one. So when I became one, I had to learn the other side of being a drug addict and I had to find recovery the hard way. And that gave me a whole new vision for what it meant to be a drug addict. And today I'm proud to be a drug addict. And I also think that the way that I learned to live and lead as a recovering drug addict is a whole new way for leaders to think about leadership. And so I'm trying to redefine both what it means to be a drug addict and what it means to be a leader. Oh, wow. fantastic. Well, let's start with the, with the, with the addiction story. Tell us oh, a little you guys want to talk you guys want to talk about that I, I don't mention it in my book at all it's okay. not in the title I mean I don't, <laughs> <no>. um, <laughs> we're just assuming a lot <laughs> you know uh, by the way I, I did want to ask do you ever tell uh, your audience when the when the guest is on that it's a two-star uh, guest? <laughs> no, because we only book five star people. <laughs> it's like you know, guys. We don't have a five star today. We had Michael Brody Wait last yesterday. It was fantastic. Yeah, this great, but, but we have a two star guest on. So, so Billy, why don't you tell us what, you, what your story? <laughs> so, what was what was it like to run with scissors in kindergarten, Billy? That's <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, funny. Okay, so uh, I, I don't have a remarkable drug addict story. Um, you know, I feel like Johnny Depp has played a few addicts in his time in movies and those are far more remarkable. But like for me, um, I, I grew up thinking that I didn't have, I wasn't equipped with the instructions for how to deal with life on life's terms. And I never felt comfortable in my own skin. And when I went to college, I found that alcohol and then drugs were a much more effective way for me to regulate how I felt. Sure. And I remember um, being in my dorm 
my freshman year of college feeling I just gotten into a fight with a friend and I didn't even know why I was upset. And, and I was so overwhelmed by my own emotions and, and it felt so unpredictable. I remember going back to my room and there, and there being a fridge full of beer there and me, that was the first time I started drinking alone. And I remember just thinking like, I just don't know how to do this thing called life. Mm. And then maybe like a month later, um, we were sitting there and uh, of all things, like a, a bunch of dudes in freshman year in college watching the Lifetime channel, who would have thought? And uh, there's this a movie about a guy that is an alcoholic. And I remember watching that movie and being like that, I can do that. I can do that well. And I know it's a really absurd thing to think about, but my parents had told me that my dad was an alcoholic and that I carried the gene. And by the way, don't ever, if you think your kid's an addict, don't tell them not to, not to use drugs and alcohol because then they'll use drugs and alcohol. That's what we do. We'll do the opposite. <laughs> it was like not the best idea. So I'm sitting there watching the Lifetime channel. I'm seeing a guy being a drunk and I'm like, that life looks really simple. Stay numb and you don't have to strive for Jack. Mm-hmm. And I started to kind of make that what I wanted to become, not because I thought it would make me a good person or successful, um, because it, it seemed like the best path forward to deal with life on life's terms, even, even though it's kind of ridiculous, uh, you know, looking back on it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Did you uh, get sober in 12 step recovery? Yeah. So I, you know, it, things got worse and worse. And <clears throat> I, uh, I did, I did find a way to cure my alcoholism and it was by becoming a, a pothead. Um, and then I realized that, you know, when I'm high on weed or painkillers, you know, it would be really nice is if I could drink some alcohol. And so then I just started doing all of it all the time. Um, and I went through a period of time where, uh, you know, I, I got kicked out of college. I got fired from my job, evicted from my apartment. My car was repossessed. And, you know, I was, I was living in, in, uh, Venice beach, California. And the only thing keeping me from living on the street was a buddy's couch, but I was overstaying my welcome because I was supposed to stay for a weekend. And I was there three months later and he would go to work and I would steal from him during the day, eat his food, drink his liquor, smoke his drugs, and then invite strangers over to his house. So I was wearing out my welcome and (laughs) I, (laughs) you know, not the best like house guest, right? (laughs) Yeah. You got to be wary. Don't don't let people with hyphenated last names come stay for a weekend. Um, so I, I knew that the time my time was limited and how long I could stay there. I mean, he was very generous, uh, but it was it was very limited. And my, you know, every um every so often, my dad would would take me to uh, to a meal, and he would say it's because he wanted to buy me breakfast out of tradition, and I knew it's because he wanted to make sure that his son was still alive. And so I would go and he would always offer to send me to rehab and I would always, you know, tell him I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. Well, <clears throat> finally I started realizing, you know what? I would, I would much rather go to rehab than live on the street and I have no money. I've got, I mean, I've got no options left. And so I took him up on it. And so September 1st, 2002, I woke up at the Betty Ford center in Rancho Mirage, California. And that is where I got introduced to recovery and they showed me a lot of different options. 12 step program was one of them. And that started my journey into recovery. And and so for me, yes, my, um, I'm grateful for all the different programs that exist to help addicts. But my experiences, um, in in terms of how I got clean was through a 12 step program. Wow. 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 
Well, when um, you uh, when you left recovery, Michael, um, what um, what kind of direction did you have as far as w- where did you want to go back? Did you want to go back home? Or did you have something else that kind of began to stir in you that you discovered about yourself in recovery that uh, you wanted to go out and pursue some new passions or what? What what happened beyond uh, Betty Ford's? Well, at, at Betty Ford, I had an experience that you never want to have. And that is a uh, counselor calls me into his office and he's like, Mike, um, you're a little bit of a harder case than most of the other patients. You don't like you're hanging out with a bunch of drug addicts that are at their bottom and you're like the you're you're the one that's worth like, you know, they're, they're there to build up your confidence, but there's limitations. Right. So. Um, so he was like, you, you just, you need to do a lot more work. Like you're too stuck in your head and recovery is never going to work for you. So you need to do, you need to go to, uh, another treatment center for more work. And he threw down two brochures, um, one for a place, uh, in Monterey, California, being a Californian, that's like my favorite place. I was like, totally, I want to do that. And then, uh, another place that was in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, um, and it had <laughs> cowboys and horses on the cover. Um, right. I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I thought that Tennessee was literally on the East coast. Cause in California, who gives an <laughs> F? you're not in California. We don't know where you are. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I'm not going to go to the place and whatever bump, like I'm not going to Tennessee <laughs> and I go back to my room and I remember them. I remember all of a sudden it, it coming to my head, like, them telling me that my best thinking got me here. Mm. And that was the first time that um, I, I, I go back and I say that that's the first time that my higher power, um, I, I, you know, I'm not a religious guy, spiritual, but that was the first time that I chose my highest power will over my will. Mm. And I decided to do the opposite. And so I just chose to go to Tennessee. And so I did more treatment and I fell in love with Nashville and, and one, my, my roommate at Betty Ford, um, very successful businessman said, put 2000 miles between you and everybody, everything that, you know, um, mm. and so Nashville was a great place for me to start a new life. So I started, you know, I went to my 12 step program. I got a sponsor. I went to meetings, I worked steps and I was like, oh my God, I have a whole new lease on life. Like, this is amazing. And at the beginning, like I was just, so my first year, my job was to stay clean. So I went to meetings and then I worked two different jobs. Um, I was an assistant manager at a Sam Goody back when we used to actually get music from uh, these things called CDs that the younger yeah. people listening have no idea what the <laughs> F those are. Um, uh-huh. And I worked at a Dell kiosk um, at a place called Opry Mills Mall selling computers. Okay. And at the time, I was just trying to pay my rent at the halfway house that I was at, um, stay clean. And, and, and that was like, you know, the beginning of my professional life, but I'd always wanted to start my own business. My, my entire dream had always been to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I kind of just accepted that that dream wasn't going to happen. Um, I'd had, I'd built a business plan that people wanted to invest in, but I was too drunk and high to show up to meetings. And I just, I was like, you know what, I'll just work these jobs and stay clean. And, you know, I'll just be grateful that if I can, you know, five years from now, I'll still be clean. I'll, I'll just be grateful for that. But that started my journey into the professional world. And I'll stop 
uh, here, but like that, that, that was where I started where I was like, I just want to have a life where I pay my bills. I'm a productive member of society. I actually show up to my job. I'm actually a credit to, to the people around me. And I want to be able to actually fall asleep at night after looking at myself in the mirror. And in my first year, I was able to achieve that. And I kind of gave up on my dreams. Mm. Wow. They got Isn't replaced by the dream of staying clean. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Isn't isn't it amazing how recovery opens options for us? It creates mountains of time that we didn't have before, opens opportunities that didn't exist before, and uh, we, we begin. I don't know. Uh, my creative abilities, creative energies. I swear, tripled after my first year of recovery. Sounds to me as though. It's it's like it's like coming up from being underwater for for years. Oh, that's a great way of describing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your brain so comes you pop back your head life. above the surface. Yeah, you pop your head above the surface, and and you start to notice new opportunities, new people. What takes place now? Well, my sponsor did say that my head would pop. He didn't say it was out of an ocean, though. He's <laughs> um, <laughs> um, like, yeah, when you get your first year clean, you hear that popping, that's your head coming out of your butt. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so for me, you know, I was, so I'm, I'm selling computers. I've got like long hair, hoop earrings in each ear. I'm in flip flops. I'm from California. I'm saying, dude, people in Nashville don't know what to do with me. And right. I'm selling these computers and I get an opportunity to move into the corporate office. I was a temporary rep. I get to be an actual Dell badge employee because Dell had a big footprint here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And so I start in the corporate office, like my second year clean, if I remember correctly. And I start working my way up the corporate ladder. And one of the things that I start to notice is that I'm sticking out like a sore thumb and it's not because of the long hair, the hoop earrings and me saying dude all the time. Um, It's because I was practicing principles that other people around me were not. Mm. At first I noticed the differences between me and my fellow um, workers in terms of like, they would like to go to the bar afterwards or some of them were high on drugs while we were working, like whatever. I started to notice let's say the substance abuse or recovery, common things. But then as I started working my way up the corporate ladder and I became a leader, I started to really identify that the principles that I was living by were also the principles that I was leading by and that they were differentiating me in a material way from my peers. Mm -hmm. And, And that's when I started to go, wait a second, you know, addicts, at least in 12-step recovery, in my experience, we typically think, oh, we have to practice these principles in all our affairs. And we're like, yes, in romance and in all these areas. Actually, we don't do it in romance. It's our problem. We're supposed to. We know we should. But when, when I talk to my sponsees um, and, and I talk to other people that like I, I, I just, you know, that are, that are earlier in recovery, it seems like there's always this compartmentalization between, okay, but at work, like what do I do at work? Because what do I do with my boss? Because like a sponsor, you can give a four step to. Are you supposed to actually tell your boss your greatest weakness? Like that's not the prevailing thought. Like, no, you're not supposed to. <laughs> and and so I found it interesting that um, I didn't feel safe to be myself, surrounded by a bunch of people that looked like me at my company. 
but I could go to a 12 step meeting in a state I hadn't been in, in the middle of the hood or the projects and be one white face and 50 black faces and, and be able to say, I'm Mike, I'm an addict at a meeting with them and, and say, I'm having trouble with step one. And, and I immediately, everybody knows me, I know them and I feel more love and safety than I ever felt at work. Wow. And so I started saying, you know what? What if I got intentional with applying the principles that I learned in recovery to leadership, to the way that I lead my team, the way that I lead myself? And can I create not only a better environment and a better experience, but can we actually capture this as a competitive advantage? Yeah. 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 Well, Mike, when you, when you began to take this idea and flesh it out, you had to run up against, I would imagine, the stigma that people have about addiction, right? Yep. So um, tell me a little bit about what you experienced as you started drawing these parallels for people who want to in no way be compared to the rest of us in that respect. Well, so it goes back to when I was working at that CD store. You know, I, I, I remember distinctly I had to get a job in order to stay in the halfway house. I had five business days where I was going to get kicked out. And I applied at all these places, but I had a three to four year gap on my resume and I, I wasn't getting callbacks. And so by day three, I was worried I wasn't gonna be able to get a job. I wasn't gonna stay in the halfway house. And then Sam Goody calls me for in for an interview and I call my sponsor. I'm like, what do I say in this interview? Because he's going to ask me about this three year gap. And the last thing I can tell him is that the, that I have this gap because I was using drugs and I just got out of rehab and I'm living in a halfway house and I want to stay clean. I need this job. And I remember my sponsor was like, uh, why don't you just try something different and tell him the truth? <laughs> I was like, whoa, that sounds really great in a meeting, man. But this is the real world. That's radical. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. I'm like, yeah. dude, I'm not going to get the job if I don't. He's going to first of all, he's going to judge me for being an addict. Second of all, he's not going to trust me to run the cash register at his store. Third of all, I'm not going to get the job. Fourth of all, I'm not going to stay in the halfway house. Then I'm going to relapse because I'm going to be living out on the street and then I'm going to be dead. And that's going to be on your hands. Right. Like my sponsor, <laughs> I tried to put it on his hands. Yeah. It's quite a narrative. <laughs> you know, uh, I, was, I was still very good at accusing people of things and making them responsible for my life. And he was like, this is not about the job. It's not about the halfway house. This is about whether you can practice these principles in all your affairs. This is about whether you can surrender the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had to trust that. And so I went in and I told the manager the truth. And instead of all the things I was scared of and, and owning that I was an addict and all the, f- I felt shame when I told him and I felt fear around what he would say, he smiled and he gave me the job. And so like, to me, I faced that fear of owning your greatest weakness. Like anyone listening, you know, that isn't an addict, even though I know that we have a, a different audience, everybody can relate to not wanting to share the worst thing about you in a job interview. Sure. Um, but having to share that you're a drug addict is, is taking it a little step further than I don't know how to use Microsoft Excel. And so for me, because the way I entered the working world was by facing that stigma head on, um, I had less fear doing it when I entered the large corporate world. Now it did show up in little places. So for example, for a period of time, I would introduce myself as an alcoholic instead of a drug addict because I thought that an alcoholic was more acceptable. Mm-hmm. People looked at drug addicts differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I was a little scared about that. But then I started to really lean into being able to say really why I was there and 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 who I was. And and I had a really powerful experience where 
all so here were my fears in owning the fact that I was an addict in corporate America. My fear was a people are going to look at me differently, but I kind of got used to that. But the other thing I was worried about was it would limit my career path growth because the thing that you hear about drug addicts is they relapse. So who wants to give me a promotion, especially if I'm, I don't have a college degree and I don't have any unique qualifications. And so I was really worried about that limiting me. But, but again, because of the way I started in my professional life, I, I had to surrender that. And then somewhat early in my career, I actually had my worst nightmare realized where um, I was contending for a promotion and I was on a team and I was competing against some guy um, you know, in our rankings for like the number one salesperson at Dell or whatever. And he spread a rumor that the reason that I was putting up such big numbers was because I was, I was back on drugs. And so he started a rumor that I had relapsed and I spent like a week consumed with anger and fear and, oh my God, what's going to happen. And I remember like after a week, my sponsor was like, Hey, by the way, has anything bad happened? And I was like, Oh, actually, now that you mention it, no, nothing bad has happened. He's like, are, are they not interviewing you for the promotion? I'm like, no, actually, they say I'm going to get it. He's like, so what the F is the problem? Like, nothing bad is actually happening. And I was like, well, I guess I just figured it would somehow hurt me. And so uh, I, actually, in my, in my leadership coaching work, I've, I came across a stat that 85% of the things that we fear never come true. Right. And I think that for an addict um, in early recovery, the stigma can be a really heavy weight to, to carry around. But when I um, co-opted other people around me to help me carry it, and then I leaned into that really difficult work of surrendering and, and, and being honest about who I was, I did face scary situations and I did get judged. But in terms of the war of my life, I was willing to sacrifice a few battles in order to be the true me in, in, in my work. Mm. Wow. 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 Well, what are some of the other uh, principles that you saw as you began to practice these in all of our, for, so honesty, obviously, that, I mean, that's the bedrock, right? We have to learn to be honest. That's the fundamental, indispensable uh, skill to staying sober. What, what other things uh, did you begin to notice really had uh, you know, a strong transfer strength when you brought them uh, consciously yeah, so, into in, into work. So one of the things that I did was I um, when I, I so I I left that job at the height of the recession and I started my own startup um, and I had no investment capital, I had no connections, I had nothing and. You know, we took a huge, huge, huge risk, maxed out the credit card, all that kind of stuff, and started a company with the mission to reinvent access to healthcare. And um, and one of my goals early on, when I actually was able to have employees, which was like really awesome, um, one of my goals was to live by my principles that I learned as a recovering addict, and I wanted to create the first space that I'd ever been in professionally that operated by the principles that I had learned in the rooms of a 12-step program. And so I started to build a culture around those principles. And I would love to tell you that those were the exact principles that were on the wall, but I've done a lot of work since I built that company and sold it. Um, And so I've really found a way to codify it that's even more efficient. And that is that to me, when you look at the principles of recovery and when they meet leadership and they meet business head on, There are three things that every recovering addict knows how to do that most leaders don't. 
And the first one is practice rigorous authenticity. Now, I'm not talking about honesty. Honesty is something that you say. I'm talking authenticity is something that you live. And I'm not talking about keeping it real in one moment when their stakes are low. Everybody loves to talk about how they really told it to that one person. I'm talking about, are you true to yourself in word and action, no matter the consequences? And so in every situation, and so to practice rigorous authenticity, you have to become really good at learning how to use the second principle, which is surrender the outcome. And this is something that every addict learns to do, but leaders don't. So leaders are taught that they have to obsess and focus on the outcomes. And we've all seen a leader obsessing over, you know, what they can't control at the expense of what they can. And that's what every addict and active addiction can do as well. But we learn in recovery how to surrender something. And it's literally by identifying all the things that we can't control and all the things that yeah. we can and, and redirecting our energy. And it's really sounds really easy, but like all the, I, I now coach over a thousand leaders. None of them know how to do it. They don't know how to do it. Recovering addicts know how to do it, but, but most leaders don't. And so surrendering the outcome becomes a really important principle if you're going to be able to be your true self, no matter the consequences. But something really magical happens when you practice rigorous authenticity and you surrender the outcome. You become better than anyone else at doing uncomfortable work. And uncomfortable work, when I, when I do speaking engagements and stuff, people think they know what that is and that they do it. I'm like, no, you don't. You don't know what it is and you don't do it. And that's arrogance on my part, but it's usually true. <laughs> and, and it's because I, I've, I've been in all the leadership trainings. They teach you how to do smart work and hard work. That's physical and that's intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's literally a sensation in our body that deters us from taking action that's beneficial. And so like how many of us have seen someone doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding 10 minutes of uncomfortable work. You think of the traditional business situation where you're negotiating with a customer or you need to performance manage employee or you need to ask your boss for a raise. We've all been through those situations where we don't actually do the uncomfortable work. But what recovery and what these three principles really gave me in, in leadership was the ability to identify when I wasn't being true to myself activate the ability to surrender the outcome so that I'm able to reclaim a tremendous amount of energy. And then I'm able to do more uncomfortable work than the person next to me. And what that meant for our culture was we were able to do things that most of the companies we were competing against that had 10 times the resources we had couldn't do. And, wow. and so like, for example, um, by teaching all my employees to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work, they were able to do something that made me very uncomfortable. They could say no to me. I thought wow. when you come, yeah. when you become the boss and CEO, nobody says no to you, right? Nope. I trained them the way I had worked at Dell. They were able to say no to me, to a customer, to whatever. Also, because their leader was a recovering drug addict and every week I would go to them and tell them where I needed to grow. They, instead of hiding their, their weaknesses and trying to cover things up and manipulate things to look good, everybody was willing to throw their weaknesses on the table. So instead of wasting time lying and hiding, like, like the average leader, average drug addict for that matter, everybody was growing like crazy, which allowed us to scale our talent. And then if you talk about difficult conversations, any one of us that has had to make an amends knows what a difficult conversation is like. Um, we would have one meeting where at Dell it would take seven meetings because people weren't willing to go through the discomfort of a difficult conversation. And if I, you allow me one detour, I'll tell you about one really difficult conversation I had when I was running that company. Sure. Sure. Please do. Um, two years into it, uh, my, my spiritual mother, my, I consider my mother, Holly, 
um, who's also in recovery, um, became our director of finance. And so if you want to talk about uh, difficult conversations, one of the things that you learn when you become a manager is how to put people on a PIP, a performance improvement plan, where if you do not perform, we fire you. Where there's not a more difficult conversation that you can have than when you walk into your mother's cube at your company and you put your own mom on a pit. Mm, yeah. <laughs> telling my mom <laughs> that if you don't improve, I'm going to fire you is not a comfortable thing to do. Uh, but once I did it and I faced that fear, I realized that there were four other people that, I was, that, I, I, that were on my team that I wasn't performance managing. So difficult conversations really could kind of give you a competitive advantage. And then um, when it comes to holding back your unique perspective, that's something that most of people are not taught to lead. They're taught to follow. And, and, and our leaders are so obsessed with their followers that they're not leading, they're being led. And so being able to embrace your unique perspective, everybody has a unique perspective. And in companies, that can help you identify blind spots or unlock innovation. But when the boss's boss is in the room or the customer's in the room or the whole team's in the room, people are scared to represent their unique perspective. But at my company, because I had learned how to do that, at, because it's pretty unique to say I'm a, I'm a drug addict. Um, I learned how to do that. And so my team was able to do that. So that meant when we were working through a problem, we didn't have three people at the top working through something. We had all 50 people working through something and everybody's idea was equivalent. And so these three principles became our competitive advantage. We had no other competitive advantage. We were disadvantaged in every way, but we built um, a culture on these principles and it gave us an edge. Man. Well, Michael, the thing I think about with all of this is when I when I got sober, I realized how counterintuitive I felt like these these things were that I was hearing in my recovery groups, uh, in the meetings, in the rooms. And I can't imagine going into like a C-suite or the executive VPs wherever coaching these people and bringing in, you know, the most upside down paradigm uh, model uh, based in, you know, recovery principles that, that work with people who have had, you know, probably the least, uh, material success in a long time. Um, how are, how are you received when you first, uh, kind of embark on this with people who probably think they know what it means to lead, manage, uh, direct a team, whatever, how, how does this go over? So I, I, it goes, it's a great question. Um, I'm very fortunate because, you know, we built that company into an Inc 500 company, it grew 20,000% and we were able to sell it to a public company. And for me, that experience emboldened me. And then I gave the Ted talk that's, you know, had a, a over a million views and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so people are at least willing to listen to what I have to say, because I have the proof points that this worked. Right. Um, at the same time, make no mistake about it. When I go talk to an executive team at Google or Dell or Global Payments, it is ridiculous in some ways that they're bringing in a drug addict to tell him to tell them how to be better leaders by just telling them essentially what I learned for a really terrible cup of coffee in an hour, like every other night, like spent with other addicts. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm taking I'm taking what I learned yeah. in meetings and from uh, my sponsor and stuff. <laughs> it, it's it's not your traditional leadership thing. So the thing is, I get their attention, and and so I use the shock value of great leaders of like drug addicts. And, and it's not shot. I didn't do it. Desi it's not designed to be. It's a double entendre, actually. Mm -hmm. But I mean, but but I get their attention. But then what I do 
is I do what I what happened to me at Betty Ford. I help them understand they have a problem and that self-deception is impossible to spot on your own. And so what I've created is a mask assessment. So I realize we're in a pandemic, so I have to clarify. For thousands of years, leaders have been taught that they have to wear a figurative mask, hide themselves, their true selves, their vulnerabilities and weaknesses from other people. And because the leaders run organizations that way, the world runs that way, and we all have to hide. And that's why people turn to drugs and alcohol, because they don't feel comfortable being in their own skin. And so if we can create a world where leaders no longer wear a mask, a figurative mask, I actually think... Not only do we empower everybody to be more successful, but we probably reduce the amount of cases of people that are addicted. And so one of the things that I do when I'm talking to these people is I give them this mask assessment where I've identified that there are four masks. I've I've done this with over a thousand leaders. There are four masks holding everybody back, and they're actually the ones that I already mentioned. People say yes when they could say no in business, and it costs people. People spend 31 hours a month in meetings that are unnecessary. And so when you start adding all the stuff up, it costs everybody 500 hours a year, which is an incredible amount of time. And so people say yes when they could say no, they hide their weaknesses, they avoid difficult conversations and they hold back their unique perspective. Those are the four masks holding everybody back. And so I bring people in with a story about being an addict and how these principles made me a more successful leader. But then I show them their true self and I give them the mask assessment where they are able to identify which of the four masks are holding them back, what their authenticity percentage is, and get a report. And the thing that I get back is like, I do, they say, wow, I do all these things where I do this one more, the assessment's accurate. And oh my God, like I'm wasting so much time. I'm potentially wasting my life. And then once I've done that, once I've been able to show them that they're wearing the figurative mask in work. What I do is I tell them like, so here's a deal. This is an intervention. So they think I'm there to like tell a cute story about an addict and redemption, right? I, they think I'm just another like, you know, inspiring story. Like, <laughs> screw that, man. I'm there to do an intervention. That's what I tell them. Like, this is an intervention. So here's a deal. We've wanted authentic leaders for centuries. And we especially talk a lot about it lately, but we do not have authentic leaders, companies, or brands. When was the last time you heard a politician answer a question with, I don't know? The reason that we don't have that is because we haven't acknowledged the problem. The problem is not that our leaders don't know how to be authentic. It's that we haven't acknowledged that they have an addiction to the mask. Mm. And when you reframe these four behaviors as an addiction to the mask, suddenly the principles that addicts use to recover connect to business outcomes in a very logical way where you don't have to be a recovering person to be able to connect that dot. Wow. Wow. That's great. Michael, this is absolutely, it's at once revolutionary, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's so familiar, maybe because I've been in recovery for 20 years. It's so familiar that it instantly rings true. Um, and I got to tell you, I got to buy this book because I definitely need help in leadership. And I now you're helping me understand that I have uh, developed and I'm continuing to develop life skills that are transferable and applicable uh, in in business in the way uh, you know uh, I lead my my for profit company and the way I give some leadership to. Samson Society and Samson House yeah. nonprofit thing. Yeah. Uh holy smokes, boy. Yeah. 
I love the way you distilled everything down to those three principles. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you. It really does help, I think, put a context, Michael, where, where we can see that, you know, practicing these principles in all our affairs um, isn't just a real segmented little piece of this or a piece of that. It's, it really can be completely holistic throughout our whole life and not just our little piecemealed life. I, I love that. Well, and, and so, and I love what you guys are saying because Nate, especially what you said about being familiar and revolutionary. Um, the thing is, is that for, for people, so sometimes people are like, why are you so obsessed with applying this to leadership and business? I'm like, because I spent one hour every other night in a meeting surrounded by recovering addicts, but I have to spend 40 hours every week surrounded by mask addicts. Yeah. So Ugh. for me, the, that is the arena. If you can create the place where you work as the arena for practicing the, these skills and use the excuse of being more successful to do it, you'll have a more enriched life. But if you don't, then you're constantly reinforcing the mask at work. And then you have to live in this dichotomy of I go to a 12 step meeting or I go to my recovery group or I go whatever my recovery community and I take all my masks off and I can be, I can be free with my sponsor, my friends, but then I go back to work and I spend 40 times more time there practicing the opposite of that or some other derivative of that. And that becomes a challenge. So I want to go to the heart of the belly with this. And so I, what I'm doing with this, hopefully, and what we're doing with the mask free movement is what I feel like every person in recovery has always said. And that anybody that I've ever taken, my wife is a normie. She loves it. I call her a normie. She loves that title. Um, <laughs> anytime I take a normie to a meeting, they're like, wait a second, everybody could use this. And I'm like, exactly. Yeah. So my goal is <laughs> to make this stuff accessible for everybody. Um, and so it is, it's not revolutionary because you know what? We have a lot of people that came before us that pioneered pathways that allow us to recover. What makes this revolutionary is where I'm applying it. I'm right. applying it to the place where every recovering person or, or non-recovering person or normie or whatever usually has to go to be able to provide for their own shelter and food. And I'm trying to give them something that not only gives them a better experience in their work, but also actually gives them a competitive advantage because the world is sick and tired of command and control in authentic leadership. And they're begging for more. It's just most people don't know how to do it. Wow. Wow. What an inspiring conversation. Holy smokes. Um, yeah, I feel as though, yeah, I feel as though now recovery makes even more sense than it always has. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that great? There's, a, there's, an, like, there's, another, there's another stage to the rocket here. Yeah. And you have ignited it. Thank you so much, Michael. What a great conversation. Yeah. Oh, thank you guys. Michael. Thank you so and much. And thank you for creating this platform. These conversations are needed. And I'm grateful for the work that both of you do to help our people. Well, thank you All so right. much. Thanks well, for being we're going here with to us. Add, uh, we're going to add links to the TEDx talk and to the book, to the show notes. Uh, once again, Michael, oh, thank I, you for- Can I actually offer the audience one thing, Nate, real quick? Yeah. It. If somebody wants to take the mask assessment, it's free. If you go to maskfreeprogram.com, so just maskfreeprogram.com, okay. um, you can create an account and you can take that assessment. It takes five minutes. Um, and we made that free intentionally so that the world can see their own problem. So, and wow. if people, if people want to contact you, Michael, what's uh, the best approach to do that? 
Well, the ben- so I got beat up for like 20 years for having a hyphenated last name and that sucked. But luckily, it's a pretty unique Google search result. So if you Google Michael Brody Waite, B-R-O-D-Y hyphen W-A-I-T-E, um, you will find my social stuff. Um, and also I have a website, michaelbrodywaite.com, um, where you can connect with me. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Nate, I feel like I just got, um, had a, a recovery revival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know what? That for me was really refreshing because it it put teeth to how this plays out in our real lives and why we really actually might care enough about our own um not just our own recovery but but how how we take this new way of being into the most honest vulnerable place in the world and that's where we make our living yeah yeah i just i really i feel like uh, Michael has some really important stuff to say. I hope that our listeners spread this podcast around and share it because I think this is well worth hearing and 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 beneficial. Like you said, you know, any anyone can benefit from hearing this in that context. All right. Well, yeah. Sadly, David, we are approaching the end of uh, the hour already, but we don't want to leave. First of all, we don't want to leave before uh, reminding our listeners of our great sponsor. Absolutely. We are excited to be uh, sponsored and partnered with uh, by Try Better Help, H-E-L-P, trybetterhelp.com. Um, and as you know, listeners, this is a online service. It's not a support hotline. It's not a crisis hotline. This is 24-hour accessible licensed counseling with a licensed practitioner. Um, if you go to trybetterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, you'll get 10% off of your subscription and you will also um, allow us to know how our resources are reaching the listeners that we have. And Positive Sobriety is really happy because this is a resource that we can throw out for uh, depression, anxiety, um, all kinds of interpersonal uh, conflict that most of the time we just carry around. It's accessible financially. Um, It's virtually available 24 hours a day. And you can even sign up for the same therapist if you'd like to see that person. So uh, remember, try better help, H-E-L-P. Trybetterhelp.com slash positive sobriety. All right. And uh, we do love getting mail from our listeners. That email address is quite simply positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. That's right. Well, that's it for today. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we're your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 